Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking towards them on the lake. But when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Please be seated. Good morning. It is wonderful to be in worship with you today. I'll say it today. I say it each time I have the opportunity to preach. It is a privilege. It is a privilege and an honor to preach and be with you today in worship. Let's go to God in prayer. Most merciful and loving God, I ask that you let these words be yours, that you open our hearts and our minds to learn more about you, to seek your face. Pray that you give us the confidence to step out in faith and remove the fear in our hearts. Put it to rest. Amen. All three of my children love to swim. We take trips to my parents' lake cabin. Many of our summer evenings are spent at our neighborhood pool, and sometimes we have the opportunity to visit friends at the beach. Now, our oldest daughter, Hannah, loves the idea of the beach. She likes the idea of it. The sand beneath her toes, the saltwater air, lots of little creatures scurrying about. When we arrived at the beach on our last trip, the kids couldn't wait to get down to the water. We loaded up all the junk that parents think they actually need to take down to the beach and you put everything in a wagon and you're struggling and you're pulling. You don't need it, leave it. You need sunscreen, swimsuit, that's it. Really even towels aren't necessary. But we packed everything up and our two youngest kids kicked up the sand and ran as quickly as they could to the water, plunging face first into the waves. And if you know them, you know that's true. Hannah, our oldest, ran at the same speed, maybe faster, but she stopped just short of the water, lapping at the sand. She turned to Jeff and I with a furrowed brow, looked back at the water, and looked back at us. 
The moment had finally come. She had waited. She had waited to go and be at the beach. The moment was here, and she was unsure. See, Hannah doesn't like being in water that isn't transparent, which is a challenge if you're swimming in the ocean or the lake. The feeling of a crab scurrying across her foot or a fish brushing against her leg as she swims is just too much for her. She felt excited and she felt brave. And all of the sudden, fear and doubt crept in. The ocean is so vast, it's teeming with life. The pull of the waves are strong, but the sound can be so serene. Water is fascinating in that way. Calm and powerful, necessary and dangerous. I'd imagine that we've all had moments where we felt sure and confident and then suddenly we don't. In June, Dr. Longbonds preached on Matthew 10 with a sermon entitled, Don't Be Afraid, What's the Worst That Could Happen? We talk about being afraid or fearful because these thoughts and emotions are part of a shared human experience. Jesus says more than once, do not fear, do not be afraid. And yet, fear clings near. So we continue to explore it together. Fear is universal. We have all experienced feelings of fear and will continue to struggle with these emotions as long as we are living, breathing creatures. However, what evokes fear in one may not necessarily scare another at all. In general, our neurological reaction to fear is also fairly universal. Chemical changes take place in our brains when we believe that we're in danger. Our experiences and our environments can produce feelings of safety or extreme distress. And once fear has been triggered, our brain goes to work. Cortisol and adrenaline are released and our blood pressure and our heart rate increase. Fogginess enters our brains and it can be difficult when we are afraid to make a good decision or to think clearly until that threat is dissipated. The disciples don't strike me as a fearful bunch. In fact, I would imagine that these guys were brave and brazen and likely more the fight than flight type. Here we have some young men, plenty of testosterone, a great sense of responsibility, high stress environment, and the desire to protect their leader. Fight mode, for sure. Just before Jesus walks on water in our text, Matthew documents the feeding of the multitude with just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. The feeding of the 5,000, as documented in the book of Matthew, is one of the many miracles Jesus has performed with the disciples bearing witness. Have you ever tried to feed 5,000 people with just 12 of your friends? No. It's difficult, in my opinion, enough to feed a household of five, let alone 5,000. But Jesus and the disciples did that. They fed the multitude. 
satisfying, it's glorifying, it's exhausting. Scripture says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. Perhaps Jesus knew the disciples needed rest from the crowds. Perhaps Jesus wanted to shield the disciples from the crowd's chatter. Who is this that performs these miracles? A prophet? A political warrior? The crowd may have misunderstood who Jesus was, so best to send the disciples away before they succumb to the crowd's suggestions. Into the boat for the disciples, but Jesus doesn't follow. No. Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. Matthew has a pattern for paralleling Jesus's prayer life and the mighty works that are to follow. Prayer first. Do we follow Christ's example in this? Prayer first. Hmm. From the mountain he descends, and what a sight there is before him early in the morning. With the wind whipping around his face, he looks across the lake to see his most trusted followers, his friends, his students, in peril. The disciples do not yet know that they are being watched, but what they do know is that they're exhausted emotionally and physically drained. How could they not be? They've been traveling for what feels like forever, both inviting others to follow and experience Jesus while also trying to keep the crowds at bay. Blisters on their feet and sweat on their brows, muscles burning and aching from trying to row a boat through some very unruly weather. Did they get turned around? Did they wonder if they were still rowing in the right direction? Have you ever felt that way? It's like this. All you're trying to do is reach your destination and then something happens that makes you wonder if you're still on the right path. And if not, how did you get off course so quickly? It's late, likely between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and the boat continues to struggle against the wind. And it wouldn't have been unusual for Peter, Andrew, James, or John to be out on a lake in the dark. Fishermen often would go out on the lake and cast their nets at night to go get them early in the morning and bring them back so that they could take their fish haul to the market first thing in the morning. They knew how to read the water. They knew when to cast the nets. And likely, they knew how to quickly return to shore should a storm arise. And yet they struggled. Bleary-eyed and weary, the disciples look across the lake to see a figure approaching, and they are terrified. Terrified. They think that they're looking at a ghost. 
Other translations say an apparition, a spirit, a phantom. The fear moves from their brain to their vocal cords, and they, Scripture says they cry out in fear. They cry out in fear, throaty and raw and panicked, terrified. But immediately, Jesus says, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. R.T. France reminds us that take heart is an assurance for those who have good reason for fear. It does not indicate that the crisis is not real, but that in the presence of Jesus, fear can be dismissed. To take heart is to be courageous or confident. Peter, being the man of action that he is, somewhat regains his confidence and says to Jesus, command me to come out on the water. Command me to come out on the water. And Jesus says, come. Some may argue that Peter is challenging Jesus to prove that it's really him instead of a ghost. And others may argue that Peter is trying to imitate Jesus, that he wants to be like his rabbi to try walking on water. And those are interesting thoughts. But let's lay them aside for a moment and instead ask this question. If you saw Christ, would you invite him into your boat? Or would you ask him for the courage to command you out of the boat and into the storm with him? If you saw Christ, would you invite him into the boat, into your boat? Or would you Ask him for the courage to command you out of the boat and into the storm with him. Peter steps out and walks on the water because Peter doesn't always function from a place of logic. No, no. Peter is a doer. Peter is action-oriented, results-driven. He's the type of friend that adopts the adage, Let's ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Only this time he did ask, and he obeyed. And he steps out, but only for a few moments until fear and doubt rear their ugly heads. He must have gotten whiplash from the elation of walking on water toward his Savior. From that to the despair of sinking into the grave of the abyss. We identify with Peter because we too are doubting creatures. And certainly we know what it's like to be afraid. Stanley Hauerwas made the observation that our fears are not governed by our fear of God because we fear, like Herod, the opinions of others more than we fear God. As a result, we will sink beneath the weight of our desires, hoping others will think us normal. But followers of Jesus, those who refuse to live in a world devoid of miracle, cannot be normal. 
And just like Peter, we are all sinking and in need of salvation. Some scholars view Peter's sinking as his baptism, but this view of baptism is vastly different than the ones that we experience these days. These days, baptisms range from what feels like a dunk contest and how many people you can get in there to an intimate, quiet, religious, meaningful practice. Baptisms now consist of warm water and meaningful words and a dry towel afterward. But if Peter's baptism is this one on the lake, it's more baptism by fire than anything else. Peter's baptismal image is filled with risk and trust and commitment. It's turbulent storms, it's real danger, and compelling risk may be the more accurate image of the life that follows baptism into Christ. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reaches out and saves him. That's one of three instances in that text that says immediately, 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 Jesus saves him. Our lectionary text from Romans today says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we're sinking, the simple prayer, Lord, save me, might make all the difference between continuing to sink or being lifted out of the darkness. Jesus then says to Peter, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? At the beginning of the summer, our children tried out for the swim team. And as I mentioned earlier, Hannah, our oldest, loves swimming pools. You can see to the bottom of a swimming pool and no sharks, so that's a plus. After years of watching her big brother and sister compete on the swim team, our youngest, Evelyn, was ready. She felt ready. This was gonna be her first year on swim team. She was excited, she knew what to do, she'd watched it be done before, and she was gonna go for it. She was gonna be with the big kids. So the first day of practice comes, and she's standing on the block, and she jumps off into the water. And she's doing great for about four strokes. <laughs> until she looks up and realizes that the other end of the pool is a lot further away than she had calculated in her mind. She begins actively drowning and thrashing around. She, the, the wall is here, the rope is here, and she swims herself in a circle screaming, <laughs> just like this, while the coach says, grab the rope, grab the rope. She comes back to our side of the pool, just a little further than where she had jumped in. She felt like she was ready to be in the water. She just wasn't ready to make it all the way to the other side yet. When she saw how far she needed to go, the doubt and the fear crept in, and that became her guiding emotion. Just yesterday, almost two months later, after many practices, many trips to the pool, she can swim the entire length with ease. No amount of cheering was gonna get her from point A to point B that first day of summer. She needed to trust her swim instructor. She needed more practice. She needed to build her confidence. She needed to trust her ability to complete a difficult task. 
It's a huge step in discipleship to move from fear to trust. Moving from fear to trust is what makes forgiveness possible. Moving from fear to trust is what pushes us forward in love. Going from fear to trust is what makes it possible for us to step outside of our comfort zone and invite friends to church and sit alongside people who are maybe quite different from us. Making the choice to move from fear to trust is what challenges us to fight against injustice in a world that seeks to oppress. Here's one way of looking at it. Howard Wass suggests, a church that challenges the powers of this world is not a church that will need to explain Jesus. Such a church needs only to worship Jesus. To worship Jesus means that the fear we experience being so far from land in the trackless sea, buffeted by winds and waves, will not dominate our lives. Fear dominates our lives and we assume that our task is to survive death or to save the church. Our task, however, is not to survive but to be faithful witnesses.